we are going to be in Luke chapter 10. We're finishing up our, our series on what is the church. We started in the very first week of May. We talked about what is the church. The church, we said, is a, is a, is a people, a redeemed people called out by God through the gospel, joined together to live out on mission. And then the next week we looked at the scripture. The scripture is what lead, guides, and directs this church. And then we saw um, David preached on missions and discipleship out of Matthew 28. And then last week I taught on what it means to worship, that we worship in spirit and truth. And today, we're going to look at even more of the mission of the church and discipleship through the great commandment to love God. But more in particular, we're going to focus on what does it mean for the church to love its neighbor? So that's where we're going today. With that, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So as Rich comes on up, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it as the psalmist says. Lord, we rejoice and be glad because we see that you are the, the God of creation and that you will uphold all things by your hand and by the word and by your power. And we see that we, seems that we need more rain. We need to replenish the land. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. As we, again, are in full swing of spring, we're seeing the rain brings life and the flowers and the trees and the green grass. And we thank you for that. But more importantly, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him. He willingly came. He answered the call to live the perfect life in our place, to die on the cross for our sin, to raise again, to show us that He truly was the Son of God. And then You sent us Your Spirit to empower us to live out Your Word, which informs us. And today we see how we are to live. We are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, go ahead and be seated. Well, I'm sure like many of you, 
Um, as we are coming out of kind of kind of COVID and all the things that we had to put in place, it's good that we're finally getting back together these last three weeks and really that things seem to be getting back to normal. And I'm sure like you, um, I have a number of thoughts over the last several weeks that, man, 2020 was a kind of a crazy year, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like, it does make a difference on how you worship when you like even when you're wearing masks. I mean, I, the last couple of weeks when we were, you know, it, it, it makes a difference when the masks are off and we can see each other's faces and we can just worship unhindered. It makes a difference. And so what I want to see and what I ask you is just think about your life over the last year and a half or year and 14 a year and two months or whatever it is. How dramatic your life has has changed over this time. Think all the way back to February 2020 to to March 2020, where that was, I believe, kind of mid-March, where the announcement came that this COVID-19, this coronavirus, was then uh, uh, declared and classified as a pandemic. I mean, our lives changed. And from there, everything seemed to kind of go downhill. So I kind of looked back and said, hey, let's look back at 2020 and see some of the things that changed in our lives well, first we came COVID, right? And then all that came with that. But then, but then all of a sudden we heard about these murder hornets that were coming, right? You guys remember the murder hornets? Who, who was freaked out about the murder hornets? Raise your hand, right? All right, a couple of us. I wasn't too freaked out because our resident biologist, uh, Matt Whitney, I always asked him, I said, hey, when do we really got to worry about, you know, killer bees or murder hornets? And he says, we need to start worrying when wasp and spiders learn how to procreate. That's when we need to start worrying. I'm all right. Until then, murder, murder hornets, whatever, we don't need to worry about it. And then how, who, would, who would have thought that, that we're in a crisis and the most important thing that we need to have is what? Toilet paper, right? Toilet paper. Who thought that would be the currency of the day? And then many of you in 2020 watched Tiger King. That became the national pastime. Some of you are still scarred of life from that, watching that show, right? But the most important event that captured America in 2020, actually started right before 2020, in 2019 in November, was not the social issues of, you know, gender to race or the autonomous zone or the riots or our capital being overrun or even the presidential event. No, what, what took our nation captive was... Baby Yoda in the Mandalorian, right? Who, go ahead and raise your hand, right? It captivated us, man. It took over. Well, nonetheless, 2020 was a crazy year. And here's what's even crazier. It's like we're almost halfway through 2021. I mean, have you guys stopped the thought about that? I mean, it's been a blur. We're, we're entering June, right? It's crazy how fast this year has gone by. Well, the question we want to tackle this morning is this. How are we, the church... The church is made up of Christians, you and me, individuals. How are we to live in such a time as we find ourselves? What, what does it look like for the church to be distinct in a culture in a time that we find ourselves? I read a great article this week um, that really spoke and resonated with my heart as I just kind of look back and I've been pondering like what has taken place in our country really over the last you know, year, year and a half. It's entitled, this, this little article is entitled Notes from the Revolution by a, a theological professor in a seminary, Brad Green. And he's just kind of going off like, how, do, how are we as the church to respond to our cultural context and what's happening in, in our culture? And a, here's a couple quotes. One, he said, 
Uh, Christians have a deep theological resources and wisdom from which to draw and speak to various challenges of our day. Yes and amen. He then goes on to talk about how, how, how we are in the world. We're not to be uh, of the world, but we're in the world. We're, we're called to be salt and light. And what does it look like to, to engage the world in the social and the political arenas that we find ourselves? And he says this, there is a political or social dimension to Christianity, which is simply inescapable. True. But Christians should think through all things, including the nature of social and political realities. And here's the phrase I want you to grasp on that really stood out to me that we're going to hang our hat on today in explicitly scriptural categories. We're to think about our culture through explicitly scriptural categories, through the lens of the Bible. And that's, our, that's the heart of this pastoral team in, in this church is that we want to equip you. We want to equip ourselves to think through the lens. We want to respond appropriately through the lens of Scripture, informed by God's Word, empowered by His Spirit, through explicitly scriptural commands, categories, and principles. And I believe Luke 10 will be a solid foundation for us to build our lives on and how we respond and engage the world Indeed and in truth this morning. We want to, we want to engage the world in these, in these, these, these cultural contexts with God's word, with the gospel, with the truth of his scripture. This is where we stand. But we also not only just want to say it and lob scriptural bonds, but we also want to get our hands dirty and walk alongside people so they see that we worship a God who requires us to worship him in word and in deed. So Luke 10 will be a great way for us, a great foundation to build our lives on to engage our culture. Let's look at verses uh, 25 through 26 of Luke chapter 10. We first see a trick question, a trick question. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Good question. Now, by this time, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. He's in full swing, and uh, he's gained some enemies. He's gained some enemies, basically from the religious elite, right? He's gained some enemies. They, he has ruffled some feathers. He has upset the apple cart on some of his teachings. And so there would there'd be some, these religious elites, that would like to see him taken off the board, so to speak, to, to be done away with, to be eliminated from their lives. They, they would like to see Jesus, using modern-day vernacular, canceled, they like to see Jesus canceled and enter this lawyer. Now, when you think of lawyer, when you read lawyer, we got to put it in the, con the, the, the context of that day. It doesn't mean think of Johnny Cochran or Ruli Giuliani lawyer. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an Old Testament scholar, an Old Testament scholar. Some of your Bibles might read an expert in the law. An expert in the law, an expert in the Mosaic law. This is who this lawyer is. And he's come... As I said, a trick to give Jesus a trick question. Because Luke gives us his motive. Look again at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to what? To learn from Jesus. Oh, no, that's not what it says. What? It says to put him to the test. So here we see that this lawyer was dispatched by the religious elite to try and trip up Jesus so they could say, aha, fraud. Or, or he would say something where they could then take him to court to eliminate him, get him thrown in jail, etc. He came to put him to the test. And even though it's a trick question, it's a very good question. 
It's actually a very good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? The reason why I say that's a good question, because that's a question that all of humanity has asked. Every single person who has been born at one time or another while on earth, while breathing, has asked this very question. What shall I do to uh, to inherit eternal life? Why? Because God has hardwired us for eternity. He has put it on every single person's heart, as Ecclesiastes 3 says. Eternity has been put to humanity's heart. So it's a good question. What shall I do? But he asked it in a very interesting way. I'm going to read it. I want to, I'm going to emphasize some things. I want to see if you catch the interesting way in which he asked it. The lawyer, the expert in the law says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see the contradiction maybe even? What shall I do to inherit? Let me ask you a question. Do you have to do anything to inherit an inheritance? Well, maybe 1% of the time you do, but 99% of the time you don't, right? An inheritance is what? It's a gift. It's freely given to you. My grandmother passed away uh, a couple years ago, and she left an inheritance to her kids, my mom. Well, my mom passed away um, several years ago, and so the inheritance passed down to me and my brother. I didn't have to do anything to earn it. I couldn't merit it. It was a gift. The reason why it was a gift and the reason why I got it is because my name was in the will after my mom. I was the heir. So it seems like this expert in the law, actually his question contradicts himself because he believes he has to do something to inherit his salvation. And now I love this interaction with Jesus. Because again, we've emphasized, and even Luke emphasized, that he's an expert, this lawyer. He's a, he's a lawyer. He's an expert in the, the law. And the expert in the law is coming to challenge the giver of the law. You can, you can, you can almost see the, 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 the humor behind this. The expert in the law is about to learn a valuable lesson from the giver of the law, Jesus himself, the one who wrote it. And so Jesus doesn't answer the question, but what he does is he flips it around and turns and asks two questions to this expert. And he says, you're the expert. You tell me what must you do. Verse 26, what is written in the law and how, how do you read it? And the lawyer answers correctly by summing up the Old Testament. He talks about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. He sums it up in verse 27. And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus chapter 9, verse 18. And so Jesus says, hey, good job. Now go and do this, and you shall live. Now at this point, Jesus is doing something. Even though this lawyer is trying to trip him up, is trying to trick him to say something that's going to get Jesus in trouble, Jesus is still extending him an olive branch. Jesus still cares about this lawyer and his soul. And he's trying to get this lawyer to to think correctly about the law and what it means to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What it means to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus has compassion on this man, and he wants him to see his sin, to repent and believe in him. Again, Jesus' answer here was meant to expose the lawyer's pride. 
his self-righteousness. It was, it was meant to humble the lawyer. The lawyer is about to say the words, and as he's speaking, hey, you're called to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I, I don't do that perfectly. It, it was meant to humble him. It was meant to see his own sin as he's repeating these words. You know how that feels when you're, about, when you're speaking truth and you feel the conviction come over you as you're saying it. That's what Jesus was trying to get for this man, but it didn't happen. This man thought he could earn to keep the law perfectly. He didn't see his inability to keep the law, to love God with all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength, all of his might. I love how one said it there. He says, uh, perfect religion or, or religion is what you think of and what you do in your spare time. Think about that. It's like in your spare time, in your solitude time, when, when not much is going on, what are you giving your mind to? What are you giving your attention to? Are you loving the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all the time? Or are you giving yourself to other things? Are they taking over? Those, those wells that we talked about last week in John 4, are, are you digging and drinking from? Or are you drinking from the fountain of Jesus? Jesus, again, is trying to... To show this lawyer his sin. He's actually like a, a surgeon with a scalpel trying to get to his heart, using the law of God to do that. Remember back in Exodus chapter 20 when we talked about the purposes of the law, the purposes of the Ten Commandments. We said there were three. And here Jesus is again trying to use the, the first use of the law. The first use of the law, as you guys recall, is that we are to use the scripture as what? As a mirror, right? as a mirror. Those that are apart from Christ, we, we use God's word first as a mirror that, that when we see what we're doing, our actions, our words, our deeds, what we see is our sin. It's used as a mirror to show us the knowledge of our own sin. But a lot of times we use this as binoculars first and foremost and not a mirror. We use them as binoculars to see everyone else's sin, but not our own. The first use is to see our own sin. It reflects our own sin. This is what Jesus is trying to do. Romans 3.20 says the law is good because it gives us the knowledge of our sin, especially when, obviously when we're a part of Christ. Galatians 3 says the law is like a, a tutor or guardian. It's pointing us. It's guiding us. It's teaching us. It's training us to see our sin and pointing us to our Savior, Jesus. This is what Jesus was hoping to do with this lawyer. The lawyer would be speaking he would see his need for a Savior. He would see his sin. He would see his hopelessness. He would see um, that he had a need for forgiveness, that he would repent, and he would respond with humility to the one that could give him living water. He would respond to Jesus. Jesus would quench the lawyer's thirst for eternity. And it's the same question that we, that many of our friends and our family, that we, even we have maybe asked, what must I do to be saved. And we know from Scripture that the Bible says that there's nothing that we can do to be saved because it's already been done by Jesus. Only Jesus could do what we need to be saved. It's His life, His death, His resurrection. We call this the active obedience of Christ. This is why Jesus had to come to fulfill the law perfectly. He was the only one to ever do that. And because of his life, because of his active obedience, 1 Peter 1-2 says this, that this gift of eternal life is a gift. He says this in Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where? 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Salvation is a free gift. It's an inheritance that comes through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And when we acknowledge our sin, when we hear the gospel, we acknowledge our sin, we repent and believe. And then we receive this inheritance. Well, unfortunately, the lawyer doesn't humble himself, but he actually stiffens his neck, which takes us to the second question, a justifying question in Luke 10, 29 through 35. And you can even say the lawyer's justifying question. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? He already had, the lawyer already had the answer in the back of his mind because this would be a, a question that the religious elite would, would argue back and forth in their day, who their neighbor was. And the consensus is generally that the neighbors of, the, of Israel, the religious elite, the Jewish people, would be Jews only and not the Gentiles. They were the dogs. It was the Jews only. It was the covenant people. That's who my neighbor is. That's who I am to love. That's who I am to serve. That very narrow view. In his mind, that's who was his neighbor. But Jesus responds. And I don't know about you, but I love, I love reading the Gospels. I love reading the narratives of Jesus. Because when Jesus responds with a story, you know he's about to just drop some wisdom and some knowledge, right? It's like, get your popcorn, because Jesus is about to just give them some great truth, some drop some wisdom and knowledge. So listen up. And this is, this is so good. Look at verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Don't think like thieves. Think like gangsters. Think like thugs who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, now this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very familiar road. The people would immediately know exactly what road Jesus was talking about. It's a road that's about 17 miles, again, that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's very windy. It's very rocky. There's like caves and little indentations where it'd be, be primed for, for thieves to hide for surprise attacks to those who are traveling on the road. It was very, very dangerous back then. And it's even still around today. You can still go and see this road road today. Now, some commentators think that this story is a, is a parable, is a, is, a, is a story, but many and most commentators think that this was actually a true story. And this is a story that, you know, that happened back then. That was like on all the news channels back then. And Jesus is, again, referring to this true story. And again, he says in verse 30, a man, again, many says that this is a Jewish man, even though it's not said many commentators, this is a Jewish man that's traveling. He gets jumped, he gets stripped, and he gets beaten down to the point of death. Stripped of all of his money, his clothes that would have been worth stuff, and just leave this man to die in the middle of this road. And all of a sudden, three men come across this half-dead man. First is a priest, that's a, that's a Jewish rabbi. The second is a Levite, it's a kind of the priest's helper, and then a Samaritan. And we know the Samaritans are what? enemies of the Jews, right? Think like Lex Luthor to Superman. That was kind of their relationship. They hated one another. And now the priest and the Levi, it says they, they see him and they pass by on the other side. It's total avoidance. Now why? We're not really told why, but here's three options. One, they don't know if this is like a a ploy to get them to come over to help this guy. He's just playing possum. And all of a sudden his, his buddies are going to come out and they're going to get robbed. 
So that could, that could possibly be a reason that this is some kind of trap. Number two, back then if you're a Jew, you don't touch a, a, a dead man. So if the guy looks half dead and he's dead, you don't touch him because that could make you unclean. So that could be a reason. Or three, and this is probably the case, they're just not very nice men. They're just unkind. They're not very loving. The only time they're loving is when they're on the clock in the synagogue and they have to love one another. But then we look at verse 33. The Samaritan man comes. And when it says he saw him, underline this phrase, he had compassion. That word compassion means deeply moved, like in the pit of your stomach. You know that feeling when you're deeply moved. You feel it right here. You feel it right in your gut. It's the same word that Jesus uses over and over again, and in particular where he, where he looks at the people of the, of the crowd, and he says, man, Jesus felt compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd. It's like he had mercy, he had sympathy, he, had, he, felt, he felt bad for him. This Samaritan had the same compassion as his enemy, Jewish man, Jesus. And it causes him to act. That's what compassion does. It's more than a feeling. It causes something in you. It causes you to act. Verse 34, he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It took all this man's time, talent, and treasure to serve this man. And not only does he just drop him off at an inn, not he just pick him up, put him on his animal. Many commentators think that this man had, a, had an ailment or an injury. That's why he was riding his animal. He got off his animal to limp while this man was carried along by his animal. He didn't just drop him off at the inn and say, okay, my good deed is done. I'm good. It's your, it's your guys' guy now to take care of now. I did my good deed for the day. No, he doesn't do that. Verse 35 basically says that get this man healthy, whatever it takes. And I'll foot the bill. And we remember again from John chapter 4, again, this, this is the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. It wasn't good. It was not good back then. It is not good now. Remember in John chapter 4, the woman said, told Jesus, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Bitter enemies. Again, the Jews thought the Samaritans is what? Half-breeds and heretics. And this is what's so important, that Jesus doesn't use another Jewish man to help this Jewish man. He, he, he could have, and maybe even reading the Gospels, you might think, it's like, okay, here comes the religious elite, the priests, the Levi, they don't help this Jewish man. But here comes just a normal, everyday Jewish man. Of course he's going to help his brother because he wants to fulfill the commandment. But he doesn't use that. That would have been okay because, again, Jesus is just pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious elite of the day. He could have just used another Jewish man, but he doesn't. He uses a Samaritan man to save a Jewish man. Jesus makes the hero of the story an enemy of the Jewish people. The hero of the story is the Samaritan, and that would have sent shockwaves through the lawyer and through those that were listening. Because it is the Samaritan who's fulfilling the law of God in this story, not God's covenant people. Shocking. The Samaritan saw a need and met it. Again, it disrupted his schedule. He, maybe he had a business meeting he was going to. It disrupted his schedule. When he saw him, he stopped and had compassion on this man. It, 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 it hit his pocketbook. His wine, his oil. He went and spent two days worth two denarii. Then said, whatever else it takes. 
I'm going to pay for it to help this man. He gave his time. He gave his talent. He gave his treasure. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. It's not always on the schedule. You have to be available. Now, there's a lot more we could point out, but let me just focus again our attention to this phrase. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. We've already kind of highlighted, but let's highlight it and drive it down a little deeper, even more, especially for us. Because if you're human, you are built and wired with compassion. Because you're created in the image of God. I'm created in the image of God. Therefore, we are hardwired for compassion because compassion is at the heart of who God is. God the Father. God the Father. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew in His covenant people. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Samaritan. You are human. Therefore, you are the image of the living God and you are hardwired for compassion. And for us, for us in here that have have been saved by grace, have tasted the living water that Jesus offers freely, that we've repented of our sins and trusted in Him. If, if, if our lives are rooted in the gospel, if our lives are rooted in the gospel, then our lives will be rooted in compassion for one another. We'll be rooted in compassion for one another. We will have compassion, mercy, because we understand that Jesus has forgiven us We were the dead man, the dead woman on the side of the road, and Jesus has forgiven us of an infinite debt. Therefore, that's going to cause us to show compassion, mercy, and grace. Because you and I have been saved by the compassion of Jesus, we will live a life of compassion for others. Because we have been saved by the grace of God, that he has extended it to us, that we will extend the grace of God to others. We've been hardwired from compassion. And in particular, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, He's going to empower you. If the Word of God informs you, it's going to inform us to love and serve those in need, those who are marginalized. If our first response, if your first response and my first response, when we see someone suffering, is to pass by on the other side, is to walk around them, is to avoid them, or is to say like, hmm, I wonder what got them in that, that predicament. Sucks to be them. If that's our first thought, then we need, to, we need to revisit the gospel. We need to be reminded of the gospel and what compassion and grace and mercy and sympathy that Jesus had on us. Remember what James said, that faith apart from works is useless. And I pray that this church, the crossing, that we would be a people that are motivated by the gospel and motivated by compassion for one another. Mercy and grace. Now we see someone suffering that our first reaction is not, hey, what got you into that? But it's like, how can I serve? How can I help? Is there something that I can do to serve this individual? Well, this takes us to the third question, the final question, and the right question. The right question, verses 36 through 37. Verse 35, Jesus finishes the story. And at this point, he could again just drop the mic and just left this dude with a lot to think about. But he then he, he asked the lawyer one more question. And it's a question with a statement in it. It's a question with a statement in it. He, he wants to reach out one last time to see if this lawyer is going to get it. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said... The lawyer, and notice what he said, 
the one who showed him mercy. Notice Jesus had no problem. said, hey, there's a priest, there's a Levite, and there's a Samaritan. The lawyer, because of his hatred, couldn't even say Samaritan because of his hatred, because of his prejudiceness. He said the one, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. But did you catch the, the, the statement in the question? The statement, if we think back of the lawyer, the question he asked in, in verse 29 is like, who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question. The wrong question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, which man proved to be the neighbor? That's the question. Because we're all neighbors. Everyone's a neighbor. The question Jesus pointed out is, are you a good neighbor or are you a bad neighbor? That's the question that Jesus is pointing out. That's the question that should have been asked. That's the right question. Are you and I good neighbors or bad neighbors? And so Jesus says, you go and do likewise. So how, how can we and go do likewise in 2021? How, how can we fulfill the great commandment to love God, but more in particular now also to love one's neighbor? How can you and I be a good neighbor? Let me first say this. Three things. First, let's be motivated by the explicitly scriptural command to love God and to love our neighbor. Let, 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 let us first be motivated by that command, the explicitly scriptural command. This, is, this is the, would be like the third purpose of the law that we talked about. The third purpose of the law, again, it, it directs regenerate, justified, saved individuals to do good work, to do good work. And so love your neighbor is like, this is, gives us a grid on what it looks like to, to live out the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. It directs us to do good works. Like in Romans 12, 8, it tells us that it highlights love your neighbor. So that's the first thing. Let's be motivated, our motivation be explicitly scriptural. Second, let our motivation be informed, again, even driven down even deeper by the grace of God and not the guilt of our disobedience. This is a huge one. Most times when you hear passages like this preached, the pastor, what he does, he just lays on the guilt trip on you guys, right? That's not the goal here. The goal here is I could, I could lay the guilt trip on you. I could lay the guilt trip on me, but that's not the motivation because that will last you about, well, by the time you get to lunch, you'll be like, all right, I'm done being guilty about my neighbor. What's for, what's for lunch, right? I want to give you a motivation that will last throughout your lifetime, and that motivation that will last throughout your lifetime and my lifetime will be motivated by the grace of God. By God's grace in your life, therefore we are to go and show others the grace of God. And third, this command doesn't mean that you need to sell all that you have and then go meet every single need that you come in contact with, that you read about in your city and also all over the world. And so let's even draw, drill down a little deeper. Where do you and I begin? What does it look like for us, you and me, the church, to be a good neighbor, to be a good neighbor? Let me give you kind of a grid, some categories to think through and to see if this resonates with you. First, we begin with our closest neighbors. We begin with our closest neighbors. And our closest neighbors are our friends and our family. Or our families and our friends. They are our closest neighbor. My closest neighbor is my wife and kids, first and foremost. That's first and foremost who we are called to be good neighbors to. 
to our friends, to our spouses, to our kiddos, to our parents, to our grandparents, to our friends, to our, to our, our roommates, our classmates, our teammates, our co-workers. Those are our first neighbors we are to be good to. Second, we move from our immediate concentric circle to the next circle, which is our, our church. It's, it's to each other. It's to those that are in front of you. It's to those who are behind you. It's to those that are sitting to your left and to the right. Paul says this in Galatians 6.11. So then, as we have the opportunity, as the opportunity presents itself, let us do good to everyone. Yes and amen. But he says, and especially, especially to those who are the household of faith. Especially to those who are the household of faith. We begin to learn... Again, we begin by looking to those around us in here. We, we get to our life groups and those who we are walking through life with. If there's a need, we want to go and serve there and be a good neighbor there. And then we branch out to where you live, work, and play and all the other relationships and then with strangers that come across your path. In other words, as one said, when you think of being a good neighbor, probably your first thought shouldn't be a stranger but it should be those who are right in front of you. Those who are right in front of you. You, you don't, you don't want to leap over someone or walk over a dead man walking to serve someone that you don't know that's right in front of you. I love, I came across this in my study, and I think this is so good. G.K. Chesterton said this. Listen to this quote. He says, we make our friends, we make our enemies. But God makes our next-door neighbors. The old scriptural language shows so sharp a wisdom that when it spoke, not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. The commandment didn't say, love God and love humanity. It says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Not one's duty towards humanity, but duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take a form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable, but we have to love our neighbor because they're there. They're there. A much more alarming reason for much more serious in operation. Here it is. Love this quote. So what captured my thought, my mind. He says, our neighbor is the sample of humanity, which is actually given to us. Our neighbor is the sample of humanity that is actually given to us. So do you want to love your neighbor? The question is, who is the neighbor? Who is the sample of humanity that's right in front of you that needs your help, that needs my help? Does that make sense? Now, that doesn't mean that we only focus on those in our immediate circles of influence. But that we do leave margin for when our paths cross a stranger in need. We, we don't want to have such a narrow focus like this lawyer. Oh, we just help out my family and those in the church. No, 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 no. It's, it's broader than that. As Paul said, as the opportunity to help everyone. And that's the same with us. We need to have margin in our lives to help out the stranger, the orphans, the widows, the marginalized that we come across with in our daily lives. One day, a number of years ago, my wife got a call from 
uh, Leslie Fawcett. She was a, a, a lady in our life group we live life with. And as you guys know here, when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is where it's just not what saves us. It's that every single day we, we live out the gospel. We need the gospel every single day. And when we go to work, we take the gospel with us. And, and Leslie was a bank teller. So she wasn't a, a bank teller that was a Christian. She was first a Christian that's a bank teller. And so everyone that she comes to serve, she has compassion. She's, she's serving. She's doing her job through the lens of, I am a disciple of Christ. And this young lady comes up in her mid-20s with a little baby, and she could tell she was flustered. She was all, you know, makeup, all jacked up, hair all jacked up, looked, 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 looked like she had a tough life. She comes up, tries to cast this check. Well, she doesn't have any ID, and so Leslie just starts to probe, starts to probe. She, she, she starts to probe and asks this lady, this young gal, some questions, and she finds out that, that basically this, this lady's homeless. Um, she's been living in hotels, bouncing around. She does whatever she could, and what I mean, whatever she could to provide for her family, I mean, for, for her child and stuff. I mean, she did whatever it took to get some kind of money to feed, etc. Whatever it did to survive. She was basically a dead person that walked to Leslie. Leslie ministered to her, called Rita, my wife, and, and we immediately just said, how can we try to serve her? We put her in a hotel for the night. And then we we like, hey, what we, we put our heads, how can we serve this woman? She was a stranger that just popped into our lives that day. Wasn't, wasn't on the schedule. And so that next day, the, the Santini family of seven became a family of nine. We, we brought this young lady in with her six-month-old boy. And for the next three years, uh, the, the child ended up living with us. Um, the young lady didn't. We tried to serve her. And many in this uh, in this room, in particular our life group, especially in the beginning, we rolled up our sleeves. This church, it was the Santines, this church helped serve this lady and this young baby. And, um, you know, we, we, we brought her in our home and we just said, hey, we, we, for the lady, we just have a couple rules. No drugs in the house and don't break the law. Well, she had a tough time doing both of those things. So it ended up that we just ended up with this young child, little baby's name was Caden, about five, six months old. And then she kind of moved on, and we had to let her go because it became clear that we, the one that needed help was this little child, and she was just off on her own. And so we, again, became a family of seven to nine to, to now eight. And what's crazy is, we, our, our family, as many of you guys know, we have five kids within seven. They're like 24, they're 17 now. But, I mean, we were out of diapers and out of all these, you know, toddler stages, infant stages for about over a decade. And then all of a sudden, some strange things started to pop back up into the Santini home. You know, things like diapers, you know, car seat. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought I gave this all up, right? Because we were like 10 years straight in diapers with our kids. I was like, oh my gosh, not again, you know. Uh, if they were my grandkids, yes and amen, but a stranger? But the, this, this is what the Lord had for us. And at one point, we sat down, our immediate family, our kiddos, and, and we had a family meeting. We had a Santini family meeting. And we said, hey, if we're going to keep serving this, this little baby, you know, we're going to have to, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take you. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take you giving up your room. It's going to take you changing diapers. It's going to take all of you pouring in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take, you know, our time, our talent, and our treasure to serve this family. And in particular, serve this little baby. And their response collectively was, quick and clear. And it just really, Rita and I were just like, 
blown away. Because you always wonder if your kids are like getting what we're trying to teach, right? Do you got any parents in here like, hey, are my kids getting the gospel? Are they getting this Christian thing? Is it resonated with them? This was their response. Their response was generally this. This is what Jesus has done for us. So we want to show them the love of Jesus. And if we don't, who will? We were floored. So we're like all in. And now, you know, Caden is now six years old. Again, he lived with us for three years. Then he's been with his dad. We reunited with his dad down in Texas. He's doing a great job. He's thriving. We, we, we keep in contact. He just had his first baseball game. It's like, man, I need to go coach that kid because his dad doesn't know what he's doing. But, but that's okay. That's a whole other ball game. Andrew's a great guy. He loves sports. But, you know, it's just, you know. But he's doing great. He's doing great. We, we have to have margin in our lives for the strangers. Because you never know when God's going to call you to step in, to stand the gap for a little soul. Amen? By God's grace, I could... The cross has been around 11 years. And, and as I look at your faces, I, I, I could go to a number of you and, 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 and I could use your story on, on what you have done, what your life group has done to be a good neighbor to those in need. To your family, to your friends, to those in this body, and even to strangers. And even right now, we are serving a ton of people. You are serving a ton of people. You are living out what Jesus says to love God and to love your neighbor. And as I look back on 2020, 2020, you guys were stallions. You guys were outstanding in serving those in this community. And it shows. We've seen transformation happen at a number of different levels personally with your own souls, becoming to love God that much more as you're serving those, you're, you're extending the grace of God that was given to you. We've seen people cross over from death to life, people that we didn't even know of the city, but because we were, we were serving and helping in certain situations, they were, God brought them to our church. They, they hear the gospel, they're loved well, they repent and believe. You guys have done a great job. We haven't done it perfectly, but we can we continue to, again, this is what it means for the church to be on mission. So what it means to, 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 to fulfill the great commission, to go and make disciples. We go and make disciples by being those that fulfill the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbors. The one other thing I want to I highlight real quick before we finish is this, that in this story, it's, it's, it's about serving, it's about serving, it's about serving. It's about the Samaritan giving his time, talent, and treasure. It's about what we've talked about. But there's also another aspect that, that we need to make sure that is a part of our serving, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. It, there, there's two heirs that are out in our culture that are in the church. The one heir is that it's the social justice gospel. That all we do is serve and meet needs, but we never proclaim the gospel to those individuals. Right? It's, it's, the, it's the saying, preach the gospel, and then when it's convenient, or, or, or sometimes use words. That's, that's, that's an, that statement is an error. The gospel is news. The gospel is proclamation. To serve someone, you also have to proclaim the gospel to them if they're going to taste eternal life. And so, 
So that's one error. It's just the social gospel. It's like, oh, we do everything to serve their needs, but we never proclaim the gospel. The other error is all we do is proclaim the gospel, but never meet their needs. Do they need the gospel for eternal life? Yes. But sometimes we also got to, and many times we need to do both. We need to proclaim the gospel and serve them. Some people just say, hey, just to love your neighbor, just give them the gospel. Don't worry about feeding them if they're, if they're starving. Don't worry about clothing them if they don't have any clothes. Just give them the gospel because that's what they need. Well, well, yeah, they need that. But let me ask you a question that have been saved by the gospel. Because we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Don't, don't forget that second one. Love our neighbor as ourself. You have the gospel. I have the gospel. Do you feed yourself? Do you clothe yourself? Amen. Thank you guys for clothing yourselves today. Right? Of course you do. You don't just say, oh, I got the gospel, so I'm not going to eat. Oh, I got the gospel, so I don't, I don't need to, you know, wear clothes. No, it's both and. And this is where, again, I, I want to commend you guys. You do well. We, we, we want to we we love God and love our neighbor explicitly in explicit scriptural commands and categories, and that means the proclamation of the gospel goes along with our serving. Goes along with our serving. Let me just finish with this. And I love this. This is where I, I believe God's been gracious to us because He's brought people to the crossing that get this. That get this. If the crossing was to go away, if you and I and everyone else in the crossing that makes up the crossing was all of a sudden disappeared from northern Colorado, that the Lord took us all out, northern Colorado would feel the effects of losing a good neighbor. They, they would feel the effects of you not being around, serving, and loving them. And so let's just continue to worship the Lord in word and deed through loving God and loving our neighbor. If you have tasted the good neighboring of Jesus, that should impact your soul so that we would be uh, and go out and be good neighbors to everyone that we come in contact with. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great passage. And Lord, again, uh, uh, my prayer of this passage that's already been rooted and grounded in the crossing is that we would continue to to press forward in the great commandment to to love you and love our neighbor. That first and foremost, it begins by asking that question, what must I do to inherit her life? There's nothing that we can do. It's already been done. And that we first see the, the commandment to love God and love neighbor, like, man, we don't do that. We see our sin. We repent and trust in you. We drink from the well of living water. It now is in our souls. We're, again, empowered by the Spirit, informed by your word. We have a new vision, a new passion, a new heart that, that, that bleeds compassion and grace and mercy, and that compels us to then go and show it. Lord, let that be our motivation. Our motivation is the grace of God that we have tasted and seen first in us. And Lord, I just, I just pray that as we, we step out those doors and we start to, to impact and, and be neighbors to those where we live, work, and play, Lord, that we would that we'd be a good neighbor. Again, empowered by your Spirit and informed by your Word. 
that we would be a distinct people as we engage the culture around us. And that people be drawn to our words and our actions because people see the fruit of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.